Welcome to episode 232 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. My guest this week is Taya Kasahara. As you know, there are many theatres and theatre companies that have shut down their productions as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, a lot of them have merchandise that you can purchase, which will go a long way to helping them continue to produce work when the crisis is over. One such company is Bad Hats Theatre. Bad Hats is the company behind Soul Pepper's popular Christmas production of Peter Pan. And they have some great merch from t-shirts to hats. Check them out and buy some merchandise at badhatstheatre.com. You know, if you've been listening to Stageworthy for a while, or maybe you're a first-time listener and you're listening through a link on the website or that you got through social media, did you know that you can subscribe so that you never miss an episode? You can do that by searching for Stageworthy on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts and clicking on the handy subscribe button so that every week the new episode of Stageworthy will be delivered right to you. And if you subscribe, let me know that you're a new subscriber. If you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is philrickaby.com. And you can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and the website where you can find the archive of all 232 episodes is at stageworthypodcast.com. As I mentioned, my guest this week is Taya Kasahara. Taya stopped by to talk about Discord and Din Theater's Revolt. She said Revolt again, which was scheduled to open on April 16th. However, like most theater productions, this production had to be canceled due to the COVID-19 outbreak. But Taya and I talked about the production as well as their journey into opera and creating their own work and so much more. And I really wanted to share that episode with you. So here that is. What can you tell me about Revolt? She said Revolt again. Well, not much. We really <laughs> haven't started. But um, so I've looked at the script. That's mm. basically it. Um, they had a they had like a one day workshop in the winter, which I wasn't available for. Okay. So I'm not really even sure what's going to be happening. However, mm. from what little I've heard from um, Jenna, mm-hmm. who's our producer, um, who's also in the show as well. Um, that it seems like there's a lot of flexibility okay. that the director or the production, wherever it's happening, like for different remounts, mm. like there's a lot of potential for creative input there okay. for the director, for the artists themselves. That's good. Um, and there's some really specific yet open instructions that's listed in the script. Okay. Which is neat. And when you say uh, specific and yet open, what kind of, like, what kind of thing do you mean? So it says, ideally a cast of six actors. Oh, okay. But okay. maybe there's been other versions where they've had fewer actors because right. they're kind of like broken into various scenes. Mm-hmm. And there's no like John is saying this and Lucy's saying that. Oh, OK. There's just a little dash that's indicated this, this person speaking. And then when there's a dash again, it's another person. So you can assign those around. however. Yeah. You yeah. Yeah. And also another another instruction as well is that a woman should be playing should be in every scene to kind okay. of. I think to I think the 
I'm just assuming that the the creator, like the playwright Alice Birch, is wanting to um, have have more female bodies on stage. Yeah, you know, yeah. and to really look and to address what does it mean to be female in the 21st century, yeah. or, to, or to be a woman. Yeah. Um, and another thing too, what was I going to say? Yeah. So I think Jennifer Tarver, who's who's our director, is having a lot of fun, kind of figuring out different yeah. um, configurations mm-hmm. of these six actors. Which is if, if the, between productions, things like the meaning could change depending on who's completely. saying what. That's completely. fascinating to me. Completely. Yeah. Right? And I identify as non-binary as mm-hmm. well. So um, I'm curious as to how that will kind of play in with um, with with these really uh, like sexist kind of concepts that we're there, that the play is, is attempting to deconstruct and oh. really comment on and critique. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And different power dynamics. <sighs> yeah. Another thing too, this is, this is a funny direction from the from the creator is that like heels should be worn, they should be taken off. Lipstick should be applied, it should be reapplied and taken off. So, and if someone, if a woman is getting undressed, a man should also get undressed to uh-huh. address the imbalance or mm. address the or mm. to make sure it is balanced. Yeah. So mm. it's very intentional, yet open and a little bit more free to interpretation. That's really fascinating. That's a fine yeah. line to walk for for a writer. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But really exciting, I think, for for actors, for directors to to have your own personal stamp on something. Sure. I mean, there's always I always think about you know reading plays that have too much direction in them. Tennessee Williams, for example, and there's like a paragraph describing everything, and I was like, but what about what <laughs> we want to do? Exactly. You know? um, and yet. To see something that's so open, mm-hmm. as a playwright myself, I don't think I've ever written, I know I've never written anything quite that open, mm-hmm. but it's fascinating to think about the possibilities that you're giving to a group of actors and a director. Exactly. And that it potentially has like a wider reach. Like this, mm-hmm. this production can have, like, it's a UK production, but it could happen anywhere in the mm-hmm. world, you know, and you could really have some, um, some ownership, mm-hmm. you know, some stakeholdership, some agency as a yeah. as a creative person involved yeah. with it. Um, now, as a as a performer, I'm, you're working with 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 Nightwood both as a performer, but uh, also as a uh, uh, artistic directing intern. Is that right? Or yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, I applied for a grant to the Canada uh-huh. Council and to to learn and expand uh, my skills in in arts leadership and what that really means. Mm-hmm. Being being new to that whole arena of skill set and of um, experience, I would yeah. say, coming from opera yeah. and being primarily a performer, um, and so yeah, I'm I'm learning so much just by being involved with different meetings and mm. um, being asked for my opinion, being asked to think critically from from different lenses, mm. which is really exciting, and and being privy to what goes on in, in an everyday situation in a in a theater company like this and also what um an artistic director is responsible for like learning all of those those different um interactions mm-hmm. that someone would have to or those, those responsibilities as well right someone what's the to. biggest surprise about what an artistic director is responsible for that you didn't expect <sighs> nothing has been like i guess too unsurprising because i've had a, a little bit of knowledge but maybe I think just the amount, I think just the sheer capacity mm. of like how 
much there is to think about mm. simultaneously and to hold all of that and mm-hmm. to give such specific um, intention to every every aspect like planning your next season planning your three seasons ahead if you're doing strategic planning or mm. grant writing you know for the next three three years board meetings um, mm. always thinking of donors and right. that relationship with the company um, dealing with your artists thinking about the productions that are going on right now um, looking at at infrastructure like in the in the space itself in the in the studio itself um, connecting with your staff making yeah. sure you know having really cultivating those relationships yeah just so much always all all the time all the time all the time it's like being an artist director i think it's like being the ultimate multitasker wow you know and having to hold it all but not let it overwhelm you and so i yeah that is i think one big thing that i am learning okay just to not let the sheer volume overwhelm but yeah. be able to do your job and be present in whatever meeting you're in whatever interaction you're having yes you yeah. know from like the person who, who picks up your mail and delivers it every day to mm-hmm. another artistic director to a performer that you're trying to you know fish line into your 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 organization i don't know yeah. something like that so before we talk about your origin story as a, as a performer uh, and a creator i want to take a second and talk a little bit about what was your what was the inspiration to start looking into the world of of artistic direction yeah that, that, that definitely made you want to transition to that mm-hmm. i think um I see it as an expansion of my impulses, not only as an artist, but as a human mm-hmm. and wanting to wanting to be involved in making real change in the world and that I felt powerless as mm. just being a performer mm. or just, just a, an opera singer, like something very um, narrow in its definition. Mm-hmm. And that in order to reclaim power that I felt was lost. Yeah. I wanted to think about, okay, how could I do that? How could I make a difference? How could I be in control of my own artistic expression and, and creations? Then I started creating works. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, well, what's beyond this? In order to create your works, you have to produce them. In order to produce them, you need companies, right? Yes. You need infrastructure, yeah. you yeah. need resources. So then that made me think about, oh, okay, so do I start a company or do I look at building skills from other companies and looking mm-hmm at what I could I could learn from people and this kind of mentor mentee relationship. Yeah. Um so that's where it started and then I co-founded a company called Amplified Opera mm-hmm. because we wanted to do something and also Toronto Arts Council is like, well, you need a collective to get a grant. Right. So Yes. You know, you you jump through the hoops and see yeah. and then you see what happens and then it kind of has opened doors in terms of making me aware of other things I could do with my skill set that wasn't just performing mm-hmm. and being like this precision virtuosic thing because mm-hmm. that was that's not, it's just it's not a st- sustainable career mm-hmm. you know relying mm-hmm. specifically on on um, artistic and personal fulfillment in performing mm-hmm. and I wanted to honor the other parts of my personality and um, and also to to look at okay what can what can something that be more uh, financially sustainable as well Right, you know that there is there's other work adjacent and also around just per- strictly performing. Right, yeah, and I kind of liked having a little bit of power, 
not going to lie. No, I mean, what, <laughs> right? And having artistic yeah. control over something and having a say and having people be like, okay, let's do that. And running with that as opposed to just kind of doing what you're told and falling in line. Well, I think that's why yeah. a lot of people who start making their own work kind of keep making their own work because it's hard yeah. to go back to yeah. falling in line and just mm-hmm. doing what you're told when you've put your heart into something and had full creative control and made a thing totally. that's entirely yours. Totally. But then when you can find um, projects and opportunities like Revolt, mm-hmm. like I'm so excited just to like be an actor, yeah. you know, for six weeks and do what I'm told, you know, yeah. but to also have it as a collaborative experience. Cause I know as this, the nature of the piece will already be quite collaborative and it's needing people to be flexible mm-hmm. and on their toes. But also I, I know the director and I'm excited to work with the other actors as well and just create something mm. new, but also structured that is in place, which is the script. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your, your, um, your artistic origin story? What, made you want to pursue performance, whether as an actor or an opera singer or both? Mm -hmm. Do you have all day? I do. I do. Actually, I have lots of time. Great, great. So you can edit this down for sure. Um, I just, I love music. I think Mm. that's, that, that's the, that was my first love was music. And being able to, to, yeah, how do I, how do I phrase this? Um, Music really spoke to my heart. Hmm. It made me feel something. And to connect into pop music as a young kid and thinking, oh, do I want to be a rock star? Maybe I do want to do that. And just seeing these people on like much music videos, you know, Mm. because we didn't have the internet back then, right? And just seeing the joy and that. And I know this is a really like overused word, but the authentic, like the uh, authenticity in someone, yeah. especially of a rock star, yeah. really just inhabiting and being. And that was really exciting for me. But I didn't have a pop rock voice mm. or whatever. <coughs> I sang in choir. Mm-hmm. I played saxophone in concert band and I played soccer. But so I went to this um, music camp at UBC. So I'm from out west. Mm-hmm. That's where I grew up. And I was 15 that summer and I stumbled upon, yeah, this music camp and I showed up completely unprepared, didn't bring any music with me. And they wanted everyone to sing the first day to kind of like slot where you would fit in with whatever respective teacher. Mm. I was like, okay, well, I have nothing to sing. Like, I, I don't know. Um, and that day I was listening to like masters opera, opera students, you know, singing their arias, like the, these big Italian songs or other folk songs with these big voices and other semi-professional singers. I was like, what have I gotten myself into? I was like maybe one of like two other teenagers in among this group. Everyone else was an adult. But they took um, us few young ones up to a room and kind of vocalized us and then were able to place us for that week. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to stick this out, even though I felt completely like a fish out of water. We Mm. stayed in the residence there on campus. We did a lot of like um, arts and culture activities. Like we saw Bart on the Beach. We saw a Shakespeare play. Mm -hmm. We saw some other operas on film. And when I saw this, this, um, this film, this opera, The Magic Flute, it was Igmar Bergman's 1975, I think, video Mm -hmm. of Magic Flute in Swedish, even though it's supposed to be in German. It was amazing. It just blew my mind to see classical music, something I'd grown up with, like playing classical piano and seeing some symphony and stuff like that, 
melded with this amazing capacity to tell a story mm-hmm. and you've got all the theatric production value you know the sets and the costumes and then this uh, this added element of tv where ingmar bergen was playing with like this really dark side of like the queen of the night turning into like this skeleton kind of thing and then flashing back mm-hmm. and these really big close-ups i don't know if that was a a thing you know of the 70s to kind of get really close into people's faces when they're singing opera but i think it was a bergman thing i think maybe it was a bergman thing maybe, but yeah 70s you can never really tell kind of like an aesthetic of yeah, yeah. and it, I was hooked. I was like, I have to be a part of this somehow. Mm. Either sing this or do something with that. And I started studying like classical singing. Specifically, I found a teacher who actually lived in my little city outside of Vancouver in Abbotsford. And she was doing her master's at UBC. And so I studied with her whenever she was back in town. And then I applied to UBC. I got in. I did my undergrad. I got into the COC in Toronto. And I moved here when I was 22. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, okay, I'm a full-on opera singer. Here I go. But so naive to the world. Mm -hmm. Because I had just been like unifocusing on opera and being the soprano of what what that is. And then eventually realized I didn't know who I was, Mm -hmm. you know? So I had to really take some time... um, after COC as a freelancer trying to trying to make it find an agent or find other gigs and also figuring out okay who is Taya so that was a huge journey for me that took and it's still taking many many years so like maybe like what is that yeah eight years later Mm -hmm. figuring out okay yeah I'm gay yes I'm genderqueer and I've been whitewashing myself I haven't been acknowledging my Japanese heritage Mm. at all Mm. and just pushing it all to the side and trying to be um, what I thought the opera industry wanted me to be, mm. someone who's white, feminine, you know, puts on this image of like this this very upper elitist class kind mm-hmm. of thing. And that's when I started to write, actually, because I needed to find a, a va- like a, a way that I could voice my frustrations mm-hmm. and my challenges and all my hurt and baggage that I had that I had associated with opera. And realized, okay, it wasn't opera because I love to sing, and it makes me feel like I can do, I can be invincible when mm-hmm. I'm singing opera. But it was the industry and the climate surrounding it. Mm-hmm. So that's why I wrote a show called The Queen and Me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that was at Buddies and Bad Times Theater. I was in their Emerging Creators Unit, yeah, and they just they gave me an opportunity to explore that and to explore this this um, other voice that I had inside of me. That's good. That's yeah. great. I, so when you were studying opera, you basically you started from being quite young and you just sort of powered straight through, straight to the COC, no time, just, just yep. unique, like unifocused. Bam, 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 yeah. I think that's sort of like a story I hear because um, I know when I went to theater school, they were always like, you should take a year off. <laughs> and we were all like, no way, I don't need to take a year off. I'm straight out of high school, but I know what I want. I know who I am. Yeah. You know, of course. And so you go through through school, and then you a couple of years after theater school, most people had some kind of crisis as they tried to figure out mm-hmm. something because it was the first time maybe you stopped, right? And like we're out in the world and, yeah. and whatever, or you left without a safety net, right? Yeah, without an institution to kind of yes hold you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I often wonder about these these younger kids now who are doing that, but now they're going from like they're going in when they're like seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. And I at least was like 19 when I started. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think everybody's, they're going through the same thing. But also there's 
There's something about that breathing room. Yes. After the institution where you, I think everybody has some kind of crumble. Yeah. Whether or not you struggle with, um, you know, who you are as a person or whether this is still something you want to do. Exactly. Exactly. Was, was the time at Buddy's the first time that you thought about writing? I had always written. Okay. Like in my teenagehood, I was writing. I was writing songs. Mm-hmm. But when I discovered opera, I just closed the door to a lot of that creative impulse that mm. I had. Yeah, like I, I grew up playing a guitar and writing songs and singing stuff in my basement. And um, and I loved writing essays, you mm-hmm. know, in university for whatever, in whatever capacity that needed to be. Um, but I guess it was the first time that I formally or publicly put myself out there mm-hmm. to be like, I'm going to apply for this program mm-hmm. that is an opera and it's about creating something that I have to be accountable to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a big lesson too. Like I learned that I, I need external account, like motivation and to be accountable to someone in order to get something done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I mean, I wrote a solo show for eight years before I finally was like, I think I need to perform this. Otherwise it's never going to be finished. Right. You need something, some accountability, whether it's to an audience yeah. or to an organization to, to, to make yourself exactly. do something. Yeah. Um, this the the show the queen and me um that was not just opera there was like opera to it yeah so there's opera involved but all of the original part of it is all text mm. so it's a uh, monologue after monologue and different types of monologues and it kind of just flows freely from opera into monologue and then it breaks out into song again and then it flows back into monologue mm. and then sometimes there's monologue over top of operatic music mm. So the music is underscoring, and it just became this this big weave weave of um, yeah opera opera and text mm. yeah that this journey which is the queen of the night going back to that original opera that I saw mm-hmm. as a kid um, breaks out of the norm of being depicted always as a two dimensional evil ambitious emotional irrational woman you know and mm-hmm. really takes the time. And the space to advocate not only for female opera singers, but for female characters mm. that have come before her and after her, and ultimately for the opera singer who's playing her in that moment, mm-hmm. which is me. Yeah. When you the decision to actually put yourself out there and, and write after so long of not not doing it, what was the what was the that emotional journey like? Were you were you afraid? Did it feel freeing? Like all of it. Yeah? yeah? Yeah, totally. Like, and I still feel a little bit afraid, but maybe a little bit less afraid. And I think it's more afraid of what people think, mm-hmm. what the opera industry thinks. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm still shedding. And it's it feels great to, like, to shed another layer, like, every day when I clock, when I clock that. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't care what they think, mm-hmm. you know? I'm just going to be me. But and, and along with that fear shedding or being afraid, then the freedom comes. You know, to be like, this is something that I made, that I thought of, and that I get to have ownership over, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just performing something by some dead white composer from like 100 or 200 years ago, that there's all this tradition and all this baggage associated with, and something that I don't necessarily personally today in 2020 connect with anymore, because you've got like someone who's very hetero and white and maybe really privileged that it's just like we don't live like that anymore in toronto yeah you know or many places really many places exactly 
Do you feel like the, those 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 layers of like what the industry thinks you should be? Those are like foundational things that you learned early on, or are they just because of your time in the COC, or 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 where do those come from? Because it sounds like they become deeply ingrained. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's I don't think it's as anything I was explicitly taught. Mm. You know that it's like everything is like this, and you have to behave like this, but all did become very ingrained because everyone around my age or a little bit older who's an opera singer Mm -hmm. knows what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. in terms of they were, they were conditioned that way. They were taught that way in schools, like in, in institutions Mm -hmm. and universities or conservatories um, from the general opera community at large, you know, you have a, a very kind of like, certain demographic mm-hmm. who the majority that majority is going to be of a certain age of a certain ethnicity of mm-hmm. a certain eco, um, socioeconomic class mm-hmm. with certain values maybe certain political slants um which you start to like take on as your own because you're involved in that art form something mm-hmm. that that is so encompassing and not yeah. just like this is my job this is my vocation yeah yeah because they expect you to commit so much of your life and all of your choices uh, commit so much of your life to opera because those choices affect like how good of a singer you will be you know and your success is determined so so much based on yeah like how you appear Mm -hmm. not necessarily how good your voice is Mm -hmm. but like who you know what you look like what your background is what your breeding is you Mm -hmm. know or whatever that term is yeah. grooming breeding breeding yeah yeah it's pretty fucked up but <laughs> yeah i mean some of those 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 lessons though that they, they wouldn't it's not the kind of thing anybody has to say they get ingrained just by repetition and seeing how other people behave yeah i remember when i was in theater school back in the in the early 90s we were aside from being terrified all the time we were it, it was very clear. Don't rock the boat. Don't, mm. don't, don't make the wrong choice. Don't do the wrong thing. Mm. Just be, you know, be, be good. Just be good and don't follow, follow, follow line. Exactly. Yeah, follow in line. Exactly. You know, and it, down to the point where we were at that point, nobody was talking about ever like creating your own material. Mm. Um, that was, was that was something that you did if you couldn't make it. Right. Say if you can't do that, maybe you can do fringe. Ah. Uh. You know. Well, they, in our industry, it's it's. Uh, well, maybe you'll teach. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> somehow, somehow, I feel like that that that's a bit worse. In a way, yeah. but I think it's it's really it's a really sad way in which we we see teachers in our industry mm. because those are the ones that are bringing up the next generations. Yeah, you know, and we need to value teachers more in opera. Mm-hmm. Because they're the ones with the direct connection. If this art form is going to live or die and have like more and more singers and directors yeah. or conductors or whatever. Yeah. You know? Anyway, so that we, we need good teachers. We don't want bitter teachers mm. who couldn't make it right. as singers. You know, we want yeah. people who really see the value in teaching and, sh- and making that connection with another young mind, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know? So. Did your teacher was. Your mentor when you were younger, were they that engaged? Uh, my mentor when I was younger, she was doing like 10 jobs for one, like as one person. She mm. was 
running the School of Music. She was directing all of the operas. She was fundraising because they barely gave uh, the opera department any money. So she was getting private donors mm. and funders to help us make like a bigger name for ourselves. She was then she had a voice studio. Then like there was just so mm. many things she was doing. Wow. You know, and also she was the university marshal at one point too. So doing a lot of like ceremonies and things. Right. Um, mm. So I think it was really, really tough for her to really just focus on, okay, cultivating healthy students, mind, body, and soul, and not mm. just, okay, you can sing those notes. Great. Good for you. And you know how to act on stage. And she, mm. she had a huge career in Germany for like 20 years or so in Nuremberg. She was a fest singer, which meant she had like a fixed contract because right. they have full-time jobs in Germany. Right, right, right. Like you could, it's almost like a school teacher. You go from September to June or something. Right. You get your holidays paid. Like it's crazy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. People really value opera there. Um, so she had so many skills and talents that she was able to pass on to her students, mm. but it was more about the craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that was the, f- the main focus mm. was to be like a good opera singer to be the best you could be because as a soprano, you have to compete against so many more people than you would if you were a tenor right, or a bass or something. Right. Mm. Or even a mezzo soprano. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You mentioned um, as you were you were talking about the, the discoveries that you were making about who you were about starting to um, embrace your Japanese side. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that that had always been put to the wayside? And uh, in what ways uh, have you been sort of exploring your Japanese side? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because my parents separated when I was a kid. Um, and then uh, I was kind of estranged from my father in my teenagehood. Um, and then he passed away when I was 19. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, and then there were, because there was a lot of sadness around that, right? A lot of grief. I didn't, basically my whole 20s. So for like, I would say 10 years, and even before that too, right? Because it was just easy to, to not deal with it. I didn't um, put any effort or energy into exploring what that meant. Mm. Like I had this Japanese name. I sort of looked Japanese, depending if my hair was short or long or whatever, if I had makeup on or not, or if someone saw it in me or, or didn't. Um, yeah. And I never corrected people when they would anglicize my name mm. too. It was just like, it was just easier to blend in. Mm. But that really started to hurt me when someone told me at a party once they were getting to know me for the first time and they had been to Japan and I hadn't ever been to Japan at this point. This was maybe about four years ago, five years ago. And she's like, oh, well, you're not really Japanese. And I was like, what gives you the Mm. right to tell me that I'm not Japanese? You know, so that I think really lit a fire in me. Yeah. You know, made me so angry, so upset and all these things. And because of that, um, it, and also tying into wanting, wanting to create and wanting to investigate more of my, um, more of my, my history and my relationship with opera. And then all wanting to go beyond that. Like what else? Like, well, my gender, mm-hmm. my race, how, how I fit into this world. It led me down the path. I was like, I really need to know who my father was, mm. you know, and mm. what that meant for him being um, an immigrant coming to Canada in his late 20s, mm. you know, and not ever being fully understood or seen by people in this country, yeah. you know, and facing racism and facing um, discrimination. And so I wanted to unpack that more because 
also, I'm not just like a white Canadian that can just fit into any white space, you know, mm -hmm. privileged space as well. Um, and looking at holding that duality of being Japanese and being half white. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to Japan, I wasn't seen as Japanese there either mm. because they have such a homogenous culture and a history of that, mm -hmm. that if you grow up outside of Japan, even if you're like, you're more Japanese than me, like DNA wise, um, that, yeah, they see you as foreigners, you know, or they, mm. my family in Japan saw me as Canadian. Mm. So to, to look at all of those, those different angles of even holding my queerness in Japan, like, what did that mean for me as well? Like, yeah. can I come out to my cousins? Can I come out to my uncle? Like, I don't know. Like, mm. is this appropriate? Is it not? Would I be disrespecting them? Would mm. I be, would it be accepted because I'm Canadian in their eyes and mm. not Japanese, even though we share the same DNA? Like, mm. so many different questions I started, um, I started investigating, but being able to, to just hold that space that I have a unique Japanese or half Japanese experience that my experience is still valid, yeah. you know, and that it's important to investigate and important to, to hold. And it's okay that I'm, that I'm early on in my journey mm. of knowing that, of knowing who I am, you know, and whatever, whatever that, wherever that journey takes me mm. will be what it's going to be. And I don't need to be like, okay, I know how to speak Japanese perfectly now. And mm. I've been to all the places in Japan, you know what I mean? And now yeah. I hold all this Japanese culture and like in my life in Toronto, like it's not about that end goal, but it's, it's beautiful when I can connect it back to, to, um, my father and those mm. memories and that mm. heritage. Mm. Yeah. Have you been able to put that into your work yet? Yeah. So that's my second project. Okay. okay. <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah. It's, it's still in really in its beginning stages, I think, because it's requiring so much more, mental and emotional space mm. as well as like physical time and physical yeah. space to like really investigate um so it's called yoru nicknaming the project yoru which means night in mm -hmm. japanese and i've taken it as a spin off from yoru no jo which is the japanese word for the queen of the night oh, okay so as i was expanding the queen in me a few years ago maybe like a year and a half ago um this whole other narrative and character started to emerge and it wasn't really jiving with queen and me it wasn't like connecting so i kind of extracted it plopped it on the table and said okay you just hold there for a second mm -hmm. finished queen and me and then i had this big mess of like feelings and words <laughs> you know and and all this like nebulous yeah gooey mess of stuff um so with that i've been exploring utilizing taiko japanese mm -hmm. drumming in my practice and un being able to unpack and kind of sort through that mess. And also I'm looking at a lot of my father's writings. Like he was a minister in the mm. Japanese United Church, but he was also a poet and a writer. Okay. And he wrote both in Japanese and in English, mm. more so in Japanese. And he was published. And I had no idea mm. until I did some research and, and talked to some of his friends just last year about this. Because I really had no idea like what he was up to. Mm you know, kind of in his private creative space. Mm. And um, yeah, he had a pen name. It's called Echiko Don Pen, which means Echigo is the um, ancient word for the city from where he was from, Niigata. And Don Pen means like, kind of like, um, 
thunderous or cloudy, ominous weather. Mm. So this kind of like cloudy, ominous thing of, and then situating and situating yourself in that city. And I was there in March and it was very rainy and very cold, yeah. kind of like a really cold wintry Vancouver day. Mm-hmm. And it get like that cold that, that gets you right in the bones and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. So anyway, it just really like put me in his mindset, like where he was kind of, mm. kind of coming from. So I have some of this, uh, this material that I still need to translate as well. And then a lot of, um, a lot of text that is in a very raw new stage, which is um, exploring a lot of these dualities or these binaries that I'm holding simultaneously that seem and often do contradict each other. Like this Japanese masculine paternal side of myself, mm. which it incorporates, I think, the taiko in in the piece, you know, which is very physical and yeah. also something that has a lot of um, traditional uh, maleness attached to it. Even though I play um, with raging Asian women taiko drummers and we're a, a female East Asian identified group here in Toronto, right? Yeah. So there's that like dichotomy. And then also holding like my mother, she was born in Germany. So this like German feminine operatic mm. side as well. Mm. And holding that in this non-binary identity. So I'm like, okay, that's another big project. It's a big pile of stuff. Big pile there. of stuff there, yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated because the, the the way that it seems like um, the Queen of the Night has um, become a theme for you since you saw that film. It's in fe- it's it's sort of like um, inspiring both of these pieces of yours. In yeah, some way. totally, totally. Um, this early influence really seems to have have imprinted on your mind in a very mm-hmm. um on a very deep level mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is really neat to be able to circle back to yeah. because i did sing a lot of queen of the nights like early in my opera career mm-hmm. and i was getting pigeonholed like being like well if you can sing the high f's you just go to germany and you just get a bunch of work and they'll just keep hiring you back and mm-hmm. then eventually you'll be able to pick what you want to sing but when you keep doing production after production and they just kind of keep dismissing you be like okay yeah you're fine We'll just make just more evil. No, more sexy. Mm. You got to want it more. Mm. You know, these kinds of really just like flippant directions mm-hmm. from directors who aren't wanting to investigate and more because the whole opera is, is really sexist too. Yeah. Like looking, I don't know if you know Magic Flute. I don't know it well at all. But it's like basically you've got this male brotherhood sect, which is all about light and illumination and wisdom. And it's all light and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And that everyone is trying to like put the darkness aside which is associated with feminine the moon um emotion um irrationality ambition all of these these negative Mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. to come into this light and be illuminated and have these yeah anyway a lot of symbolism yeah it sounds like it like Uh, very yeah but i mean it's also got all of that all that history of like this is how we've always done it sort of of, uh um, tradition yeah it must be hard to shake in a production. Yeah. And like many, many directors in the past, I would say 30 years have started to really shake things up and really tip things onto their heads. Um, And whether, whether they make sense or not, you know, they, the show goes on, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think opera on a general level is still kind of placed on this pedestal. So we haven't, brought it down enough yet to the earth where we can look at it from more a contemporary critical lens. Like I'm talking about like 
like mass level, like yeah. um, on, on a grand level to, to really critique it and present it in a way that will, will provoke more conversation, uh-huh. you know, about the issues today. So, but I think a lot of that, like to me, I, I honestly have never been to an opera. The only reason I know <laughs> any operas is because of Bugs Bunny. And I yeah, feel that's, like, that was me too yeah, as a kid. Yeah. yeah. And so I feel like, um, there's the barrier in, in opera is, um, the fact that people, a lot of people don't go to it. Yep. And totally. if you think, uh, sometimes I'm like, I think maybe I'll go to the opera. And then I look at prices. I'm like, maybe I won't go to the opera. Yeah. You know? And I think if more people could go, we could have more of these conversations about oh, what these things mean. Completely. It's inaccessible on a lot of levels, you know, um, especially to be able to consume it at a rate that we consume theater in this city. Yes. Yeah. You go to you go to I don't know much about the Met, but I know in like Vienna or La Scala Mm -hmm. in Europe, you can get like a really cheap ticket for like eight euros or Mm -hmm. ten euros the day of. Yeah. And you might have to look around like a pillar because you're stuck in this kind of weird angle, like in terms of your viewpoint of the stage. But it's ten euros. You know, yeah. and that's accessible. And you've got world class musicians and all of the all like a like a giant season mm. showing like thirty to forty productions per year and a yeah. show on almost every night. Yeah. But in this city, like it's different. And that's yeah. all it's all because of funding. Yeah. You know? It really is. Well, I mean in Europe they, they couldn't <clears throat> one of the company I work for, we have a German office. And uh, whenever the guy who runs the German office comes over here, he talks about the way that that the arts are funded in, in Germany mm-hmm. and how there's something always going on because they're they just keep putting money into the arts totally. and it's affordable because they keep they see it as something that's worth funding exactly. and we keep giving pennies to the arts yep. as far as governments go and so exactly well their taxes are also higher too yes yeah yep. you know um, but I think there there is a lot there are a lot of people wanting to make opera more accessible. Mm. You know, we have Tapestry Opera who's been around who celebrated 40 years mm. this season and they are the um the leaders in contemporary opera mm. in this city and maybe one of the leaders in the world too creating producing contemporary opera. Mm. And um they're I know they're they're making a lot of efforts to try to make their 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 art form their organization more accessible to people like not only in price mm-hmm. but um in in terms of venue in terms of engaging with certain communities that mi- that might as- that might not even know what opera is you know and being exposed to it and yeah. wanting to invite people in and draw people in and then we have a huge indie opera scene in this city as well like mm-hmm. i think there's like 13 or 14 companies mm-hmm. alone just in this city mm-hmm. and then there's more across the country more definitely out in like the vancouver area yeah creating their own projects where you can get cheap arts worker tickets you can yeah. get and usually an average price to see a to, to see an indie opera is maybe around 20 to 30 dollars mm. mm. so there is a lot going on that that it feels like kind of my generation is being like well we're not getting hired by these big companies because there's yeah. only five in canada yeah we may as well make our own work yeah you know and and really make something that is provocative and and challenges and critiques the status quo mm. and the stereotypes of opera because we all love it. Like, it all drew us in there for a reason. Yeah. But it's how can we also let other people know how awesome it is, yeah. you know? I think an industry that has an indie scene is a healthy industry. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you didn't have that, then you just have these five companies doing the same things and nobody doing anything really interesting, yeah. nothing really challenging. Mm-hmm. So it's good to hear there's this this great indie scene. Mm-hmm. We'll have to look out and find more of that. Um, is it the indie scene that, that you're aware of? Is it is it relatively new? No, no, I would say it started against the grain theater. It was probably mm-hmm. like the first indie company that started about 10 years ago or so. And then from there, other ones started to pop up. Like Opera 5 is really big. They have this whole series on YouTube called Opera Cheats, where they break down an opera in two minutes. And they they actually hire like opera singers uh-huh. of the city to act out these roles like in really comedic, fun ways. And then the head of the company, the, the, the previous head of the company, um, she would uh, kind of narrate the in-between stuff. Mm. So you get these really fun little comedic snippets and summaries mm. of operas. And those have gone viral. Nice. Yeah, so they're getting like a global reach and and then now we have all these other companies that kind of have different focuses in what they want to do, how they want to present, what mm. they're presenting. Um, and the latest one, I guess, is Amplified Opera, which yeah. is the one that I've co-founded with Arya Umazawa, who nice. used to actually run Opera 5. Um, and we're centering equity-seeking artists okay. within the industry because there really isn't any company that explicitly has that in their mandate. Mm. You know, Mm. and because it's a really hot conversation right now to look at diversity, inclusivity, equity within the arts. Yeah. We really wanted to bring that conversation over to opera, too. Um, And I feel like the opera industry is is, um, catching up. Like theater has made much more gains. Yeah. And we have a lot to learn. Like the opera industry has a lot to learn from from theater. So hopefully with more conversation across these disciplines and more collaborations, I think across these disciplines, like for example, expanding the definition of opera, mm. you know, integrating theater into opera, integrating opera into theater. We could see, we could see a lot more strides being made. Yeah. And more opportunities for people too. Yeah. 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 It, it, I've always found it interesting that there's opera as this separate thing. And musical theater as a separate thing. And there are these certain shows that seem like they're opera, Mm -hmm. but they're not. Like Sweeney Todd, for example, seems like an opera. And yet it's considered musical theater. Mm -hmm. Um, um, How do you see it that it's like an opera? I'm curious as to what you think. In that it's sung through, for one thing. Okay. Um, It's sung through, and I think... Like there's no breaks there's with no dialogue. Breaks, there's no, like the music doesn't stop. The music doesn't stop. It stops a couple of times, but it is pretty much sung through mm. um, a couple of moments of dialogue. Um, but also it's it's operatic in that it's big and a little over the top. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and uh, like that, you know. Mm-hmm. I think, to me, I think they seem separate, and yet mm-hmm. I think that they're only separate in... Their marketing campaigns, the marketing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, and like, absolutely. and their audience, like, and who goes audience. to it? Yes, yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point you make because it is operatic in its scale. Mm-hmm. In terms of like, I would say most musicals you see being produced today are operatic in scale. Like they've mm-hmm. got giant budgets, yes, huge sets. You've got stars on stage, like actors from Hollywood mm-hmm. are, are playing these characters on Broadway, and. They've got really, really great stories, you know, and powerful messages sometimes <laughs> and tour de force types of singing. Yet it's amplified. Yet yes. it's a completely different technique. Mm-hmm. So yes. if you didn't look at like 
the technical output in terms of what the vocal technique mm. needed, it could be seen as opera. Yeah. Because opera really just means work in Italian. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's the only thing of where it came from. And I guess because it has been... It, it it originated from this like Western classical music that we hold as like one of the high arts, right? That that's what maybe is differentiating opera from musical theater. And then mm. also to the fact that it's not amplified mm-hmm. and the voices are much louder and mm-hmm. they have a much wider range. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're singing with a completely, with a very specific and very different technique from yes. musical theater. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but really, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then now I feel like there's a whole other subgenre evolving that I call music theater. Mm-hmm. That it's like you've got something that isn't quite an opera. It isn't quite theater. Mm-hmm. It might sort of have kind of quasi-operatic singing, yet some of the singing isn't that operatic in nature. It's mm-hmm. maybe more, I don't know in a I wouldn't say muse, musical theater because that has a very specific aesthetic that you go yeah. to specific conservatories and schools to learn how to yeah. sing that way for a microphone but it has maybe a softer edge to it mm. a more accessible edge in that you'd see more people have the ability to sing in that in that style yeah yeah mm. I don't know mm. it's all just kind of like a big blur but it, it is great to be able to see artists flexing through all of those genres. Because I have opera singer friends who were singing on Broadway in New York. Mm. And then they come back and they start doing an opera show, you know. And early on I was told, you know, don't do that. Just do one type of singing. Because yeah. you're A, you're going to wreck your voice. Or P, you're gonna, B, you're going to confuse people. But um, I don't know. I think in this kind of this kind of economy, this age, we need to be adaptable. We need to be flexible. Yeah. And that's why I started to get into acting too. Yeah. Yeah. That whole idea of, of, of confusing people. Cause when <laughs> in school, another one of the things they always said was like, just do, if you can do something else, do that, but never tell anybody that you can do more than one thing. Mm. Make sure everybody knows you're an actor. Don't let them know that you're you also a carpenter, that you do stage combat or any of this stuff. Just do that. Mm. You don't want to confuse them. Or you don't want them to think that you're not taking it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And yet now I talk to people and they're all of the things, you know, they are stage combat, they're intimacy directors, they're, they're actors, they're also singers, they also do carpentry, stage managers, set decoration. Totally. Or personal training or yoga. And they can be all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the ability to go from the COC to a show on Broadway and back again just is more opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe also more personal fulfillment. Yeah. Like you yeah. can just get a variety of experiences in your life as opposed to just doing one thing yeah. for the rest of your life. Yeah. I don't know. That also made me really sad too, thinking, okay, I only can do this one thing and be really mm-hmm. unifocused and yeah. not have a backup plan or a plan B. You know, that was one thing too. I was like, nope, don't have a plan B. Just go for it. Yeah. You know, but then when things started to get tough and I wasn't, understood by the industry i had to reevaluate mm. yeah 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 so yeah thank you so much it's been a great conversation thank you
This has been a Homebody Productions production.